Hey there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have a new group, partially new group of students here with me. No, mostly a group that's been here before uh, to talk about a very interesting topic and one that I have a lot of thoughts about and know almost nothing about. Danny, uh, we'll come to you in just a moment. Before we do, let's do the introductions of our, of our uh, second tier stars for the uh, presentation. Uh, I'm Kristen Kapustinski. I am a third year medical student at Rocky Vista University. I'm Logan Loomis. I'm also a third year medical student at Rocky Vista University. And Danny, you have introduced yourself once in the past, but why don't you do a little bit bigger introduction this time. Tell us a little bit about uh, why in the world you came back for a second rotation, where you're headed uh, at the end of your fourth year. Yeah, my name is Danny Hansen. I'm a fourth year medical student at Rocky Vista University. Uh, I had spent time here before, back in February. Uh, the reason that I came back, I actually don't think I told Dr. Roundy this story yet, it was one specific patient that I saw while I was on a GI rotation. And I saw that the patient had paranoid schizophrenia as one of their diagnoses, and I just remember thinking that I wanted to spend a little more time with that population to make sure there's not other ways that I should be helping. And you know, I thought you came back just because you liked us so much, <laughs> but no, you want no, to learn. What kind of student are you? <laughs> a good one, I think. A good one, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Danny, how in the world did you come up with this topic originally? Because you're now, I think, six, seven months after you originally developed the topic. What was on your mind when you did choose this the first time? When I had chosen, there was a patient that we were interacting with who had had an episode of uh, depersonalization and uh, in the dissociative disorders spectrum, and it was something that was fascinating and I didn't know much about and still might not, but... <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know much about it either. And I just spent the last three hours reviewing what I didn't know in the DSM. <laughs> How about if we tackle that? Yeah. Now, I want to go back, though, uh, when I was much younger and perhaps even less impressionable, there was uh, a story about a woman named Sybil. The story was published, or I think the book came out in 1973, and it was a, quote, true story of a woman possessed by 16 separate personality disorders. And if you look a little bit later, you'll see an NPR story saying that the woman who wrote the book said it was a fake, or who the story was about say that she didn't actually have these symptoms. I've struggled with this condition because it seems like maybe seizure disorders explain these kinds of symptoms, or schizophrenia describes these kinds of symptoms, or PTSD describes these symptoms more than a label dissociative identity disorder. So I've really struggled with this, and I think you are going to try and make the case that I need to open my mind and be more impressionable. Yes. Should we see how we can do that? Let's do that. All right. So let's start with the, the diagnostic criteria. The DSM-5 has uh, five different criteria. Uh, the first two seem to be the key aspects of this, and then uh, the fourth and the fifth are some of the exclusionary kinds of items. So why don't you start with that A criteria and explain what I think is probably the key part of dissociative identity disorder, what separates it from or what makes it like everything else in the DSM. Let's okay. see what you got to say. 
So for the A criteria for the dissociative identity disorder, it would be a disruption in their perceived sense of identity with two or more distinct personality states. And then there's a discontinuity in their sense of self. I think that two or more distinct personality states is one is the most important part in this diagnosis because you could say someone maybe with a bipolar disorder has two separate states, but there isn't a lack of feeling of the continuity and their personality can be similar. I did notice also that in the criteria it talks about the discontinuity in the sense of agency. So it's not just self, but a lot of people who have a dissociative identity disorder have both delusions and in addition to that some sort of sense at least coming out of and maybe more coming out of the uh, dissociative states of, of losing control of themselves. Right. That is because they, they will have what you would describe as a delusion. One difference between maybe in schizophrenia, say they were crying, was one example given in the DSM. A person with schizophrenia might have a, a delusional statement like some government put some extra water ducts behind their eyes and now it's going. But a person with dissociative identity disorder might describe it as, I feel like someone else is trying to cry with my eyes. Interesting. I like that. And, and I think as we look at maybe the delusions, uh, we had an article, I think that, uh, I think we both looked at at one point, the Martinez article, and we'll talk about the maybe the differences or similarities between delusions that pop up in uh, DID and schizophrenia spectrum disorders or SSDs. Yeah. All right, so that's the A criteria, and it, that change um, needs to involve changes in affect, changes in behavior, changes in consciousness, changes in memory, changes in perception, changes in cognition or motor and sensory function. Now again, I'm looking at this going, I, I work in a world with schizophrenia, that still sounds like schizophrenia to me, right? Right. But it's not. Right. We're going to keep working on that. Yeah. Make the distinctions. Okay. The B criteria is maybe another distinguishing factor of this discussion. Tell me about the B criteria. In the B criteria, we're going to have some recurrent gaps in recall that's inconsistent with just ordinary forgetting. They're going to have periods of time that they don't remember, which in schizophrenia, they usually, if you ask them about what they were having uh, delusions about earlier, they can tell you about it. And remember, whereas here they wouldn't be able to. I have had some patients where I think when they're very, very sick with schizophrenia symptoms, uh, their illness has been um, exacerbated by medication not adherence, perhaps by infections that have worsened symptoms of psychosis. My patients will sometimes talk about those periods of time where they don't remember as well. And perhaps with dissociative identity disorder, those associations um, between memory changes or memory states would be more related to stress rather than to physical illness or exacerbation of the schizophrenia symptoms. So it, it wouldn't be something associated with stopping an antipsychotic. It would be more about re-traumatization or something along those lines. Does that sound like I might be on the right pathway? Yeah, and there's mention in some of the components of this where it can even be a physical proximity to maybe where some trauma took place that can set off a episode. Now you mentioned before uh, some different types of amnesia that can 
pop up in these recall gaps? Because this is an amnesia symptom, right? Right. What what types of amnesia might somebody expect if they are working with somebody with DID? For working with someone with DID, generally they're going to find uh, gaps in certain time frames that would be when one of their other personalities might have been dominating. We can have dissociative amnesia uh, that doesn't include the criteria for dissociative identity disorder. And there are some... I want to punctuate that. I'm going to interrupt very, very quickly. So within this section, there are a couple of other diagnoses. uh, So there's DID. There is dissociative amnesia, which is a DSM-5 diagnosis. There is derealization, which is a DSM-5 diagnosis, and depersonalization, which is a DSM-5 diagnosis. Interestingly enough, the three that I mentioned in addition to DID, those can show up as well as symptoms in uh, DID, right? And then they also have a standalone diagnosis. So when you're talking about dissociative amnesia, you might meet the criteria for dissociative amnesia, but you would also potentially be better described as having dissociative identity disorder if the other criteria for DID are met. Right. Does that sound right? That sounds perfect. Okay, so go ahead and, and start start over. I totally interrupted you. So start mm-hmm. over with this uh, this idea you were explaining about dissociative amnesia and how it might fit in DID or stand alone. Right. So in DID, a lot of their gaps in memory will be from certain time frames. It can... There are examples where it can come on very quickly. They'll be shopping and notice items in their grocery cart that they didn't remember putting in there. Or it can be during longer periods of time, say they have a dissociative fugue and they've traveled halfway across the country and it's lasted several days with another personality. So it it can come in and out pretty quickly, but it'll be uh, uh, a time frame that a discrete time frame. Uh, yeah, a discrete time frame. Okay. And, and now what are the five types of amnesia that you might expect? Again, I, I think I interrupted that. Yeah, and this was listed under the, just under the standalone dissociative amnesia criteria, or the, that diagnosis. diagnosis. Uh-huh. So we had a localized type of amnesia where the patient has recall for none of the events that occurred in a particular time frame, so like during a wartime battle. So that would be a localized or circumscribed. Selective would be certain portions of a time period, such as a birth of a child, have been forgotten. It's less common. There is generalized, where all experiences during a patient's lifetime have been forgotten. Continuous, which is a patient forgets all events from a given time forward. And this is said that this is now extremely rare. And then systematized, which is maybe the most interesting, is a patient has forgotten certain classes of information, such as that is relating to family or work. Interesting. All right, so the C criteria then. I have in my notes distress, and I have no idea what that means now. I think they were just saying that it causes significant distress to the person's life. (laughs) Right. So sort of like all of our diagnostic criteria, there needs to be some sort of change in function or or ability during the time of the condition. Uh, There are some exclusions to this criteria or to this condition. What are the exclusions? 
The first exclusion would be that it is not part of normal, cultural accepted, culturally accepted practices. So that could be different religious practices, whether it's uh, they're acting as a medium for communicating with spirits, or what would maybe be the most popular example that I could think of. Yeah, I, I, I looked at that. Now, that's one of the exclusions. I want to do a little tangent on that if I can. Yeah. There are, in the discussion in the DSM, there are two types of kinds of dissociative identity disorder. There's, um, I want to make sure I get this right, possession dissociative identity disorder and everything else or non-possession DID. Right. What is possession DID? Possession DID seems to involve maybe some spirit, uh, I think it had it in quotation marks. And so the, it, there's the... Mm -hmm. They said that it didn't necessarily have to be revolved around religious ideologies, but often would be, where there is some form of spirit involved in their own DID. I think the when I read through it, it said something along the lines of an example would be uh, a person in a small town suddenly started taking on the characteristics of a person who had died many years before right. using the same voice, using the same kinds of behaviors, um, and that that would be an example of possession DID, right? Right. And, and it's interesting because, correct me if I'm wrong, I didn't see possession um, DID, they didn't really talk about how to distinguish between possession DID and the types of experiences that might come about in the normal kind of culturally acceptable ways that you might see in some spiritual congregations or, or something along those lines. Right. I, I didn't see any differentiation there either. The only differentiation I saw was they also mentioned a childhood play, mm -hmm. whether a child was pretending to be someone else and that. But for this for the but religious that would be part, an exclusion, right? That's right. Exclusion, yeah. Right, but for the religious part, I didn't see a solid defining line. The fifth criteria is substances, and I'm not sure why I wrote that either. Can substances you? and seizures. Uh, that's an exclusionary criteria, so you can't diagnose it if it's a dissociative uh, substance or if somebody's having uh, post-epileptic uh, um, confusional states. Right. Okay. Right. Men and women are different in the way they present. What are those differences? One interesting thing with men are much more likely to try and hide their diagnosis as much as possible. Whereas we might talk about this later when we differentiate it from malingering. So no one really wants to, with the, with the diagnosis, wants to talk about it or have it as much out in the open. but women are a little bit more likely to be diagnosed earlier on, whereas it might be harder to diagnose a man because they're working harder to hide it. My understanding was that men have this condition more often than women. I fell out of my chair. Yeah. I, I had no idea. And I think women, the reason why I was under the misperception was that we see women showing up more often in treatment centers, but we don't see men showing up there. We see them showing up in prison. Right. And I didn't fully understand that. Did you get uh, any read on why that might be happening? 
I, I didn't, only that they mentioned that it's probably underdiagnosed for men because of the extra efforts they might go through to hide it. In all fairness, I think they relied on a very small population sample to try and figure out this number, so I don't know that these numbers are anything we can really hang on to yet. Right. Uh, let's see, suicide. They're, I'm surprised by this too. Yeah, there's a much higher risk of suicide in these patients. And as I understood, maybe that when they're in their, I don't know, say original or their baseline personality, that if they realize that they are having this disorder, that it's uh, scary. scary. Yeah, I, I couldn't get a read on which state might lead to the suicide. I was shocked by the number. 70% of at least some population, I don't know if it's the entire population or a group that they identified that had come for help, not entirely sure what this is, right. uh, but 70% of that group had attempted suicide, often multiple attempts. That's a lot of suicidality. That's, yeah. that's a very high rate. Yeah. Um, Factors that, that might help us, oh, one other, two other things we should probably talk about. We talked about uh, dissociative amnesia a little bit. We talked about how there is a diagnosis for that alone that wouldn't include the other criteria. And then we talked about that A criteria, which is the change in personality state, right? D tell me the difference between derealization and depersonalization, or tell me what either are. Don't tell me the difference. Teach me <laughs> Teach me what they are. Yeah, so depersonalization and derealization are very interesting to me. So when we think depersonalization, it's when someone feels they aren't attached to their own body or they're outside of their own body. They can maybe say, I know that I have feelings, but I am not feeling them. They might even say, I am a different person, uh, or they wouldn't say I am a different person, they would say as if I were a different person. Whereas in dissociative identity disorder, they'd say they were a different person, not as if they were. And then derealization, so depersonalization, you don't feel connected to yourself. Derealization, you don't feel connected to the reality around you. That can be physical, you can see objects that might appear more two-dimensional than they should, or exaggerated three-dimensional. There can be some Perceiving time can either go too fast or too slow. And interestingly enough, it's approximately one half of all adults in the US have experienced at least one lifetime episode of depersonalization or derealization. But a lifetime prevalence that meets the criteria is only 2%. And both of these can happen in dissociative identity disorder. Right. Does it happen at any specific time? I, I was under the impression that maybe this happens when you're coming out of a, a second personality state back to an original personality state, but it, it wasn't clear to me. It wasn't clear to me either, either coming out or maybe going in if they remembered the beginning of the loss of the memory okay. was one way I read it. Um, and the one, an, an important thing that may show up on exams if it's talking about depersonalization or derealization, if they are having one of these episodes not part of a dissociative identity disorder, their reality testing will remain intact. So if you are doing reality testing with them, that won't be altered. Which, which I have a little bit of a difficult time with because 
I, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, delusions are very common in DID. Right. Very common. Right. In fact, one of the articles that I read was the uh, Martinez article. This is a recent article, 2021, where a group, I think out of a couple of different countries, but led by Martinez, who was in England, uh, tried to see if there were clear differences between delusions in DID versus schizophrenia uh, spectrum disorders, SSDs. And at the end of the p-hacking, <laughs> I think what I read was um, it's hard to tell the difference between uh, all comers who have delusions. Uh, maybe the people who have dissociative identity disorder are a little bit more, uh, have greater conviction about their delusions. But I'm struggling. Yeah. Delusions are common in schizophrenia and DID. Right. So how do you help me understand the reality testing part coming out of derealization? Any ideas? From my understanding is if it's not a part of the, because I don't think that reality testing was intact in dissociative identity disorder. But it is in derealization. In derealization standing alone. Okay. That's helpful. In my understanding of uh, in reality testing would be testing someone's understanding of what's going on in the world around them versus what they feel is going on in the world around them. And if those two line up, their reality testing is intact. Or if they say it feels like this, but I know it's this, that would probably be intact reality testing as well, right? Right. Um, There are, so if we're thinking about how we would correctly identify, and by the way, we're going to have a final exam here in a few minutes, right? If we were thinking about how we might correctly identify uh, delusional identity disorder, let me add to the challenges. Uh, Seizures are one of the rule outs or the exclusionary criteria, but tell me about non-epileptic seizures in DID. You're shaking your head. (laughs) It does make it more difficult because if they have an obvious epileptic seizure, then that would exclude DID because essentially DID, if anything else explains it better, it will be anything else. Essentially is it. And so without an EEG, sometimes it's hard to tell. But if you have an EEG during one of these derealization, depersonalization episodes... And that would be helpful. That would be helpful. And the, of course, the flip side of that is it's not always easy to have a video EEG of an event. Usually what you do is you try and have uh, an EEG uh, sleep deprived, hopefully with maybe even flashing lights to see if you can induce a seizure. But if you don't get a seizure or seizure activity, that doesn't always rule out no seizures. It just means you didn't catch it during the test. Right. right? So I, I think the challenge is it's very common for um, our patients with DID to have non-epileptic seizures, which also runs in the same vein with uh, conversion disorders. And then we also commonly see flashbacks, self-injury, depression, anxiety, substance misuse. And so that cluster of uh, um, that, that conversion cluster, right? It, right, it could be difficult to tell apart. Yeah. and. That, that's even a good point. The, the DSM specifically says in there that dissociative disorders are placed next to, but not part of, 
the trauma and stressor-related disorders reflecting the close relationship between these diagnostic classes. So if I had someone who I was trying to differentiate between and they had no history that we knew of of any PTSD or, or anything that's really common with DID, then I might continue looking even harder for some physiologic explanation. Yeah, so, so I was intrigued by that as well. I think you're bringing up the point that um, DID is most, th there's a strong association, much like there is in the conversion disorders, much like there is in borderline personality disorder, much like there is in schizophrenia. The uh, childhood abuse slash maltreatment or going through a significantly uh, prolonged and painful process that's not intentionally, well, let's say, I'm not sure intentionally traumatic is the way of saying it, but something like uh, maybe a medical condition that takes a very long time to treat and requires a lot of inter, uh, uh, painful interventions that right. over a long period of time. Those, those seem to be risk factors for DID, right? R really common risk factors. It's, I think they said it's rare to see DID outside of someone who had those risk factors with them. It'd be you're not usually going to see it in developing a middle-aged person with no prior no history. history. Yeah, with no traumatic history. And without the significant uh, medical event, I think is what they relied on. To, although I think if you could imagine something that would be like a prolonged medical event that an adolescent would go through, maybe a difficult-to-treat tumor, right. perhaps uh, maybe some sort of cardiac uh, uh, malformation that required multiple surgeries at, at a certain age. Those kinds of things would potentially lend itself to the condition. Right. Now one of the other caveats that I think I saw was that you have to have had the trauma but it doesn't mean it shows up within a few years. It can but you might have somebody that's in there, I think I read, in their 80s who has DID symptoms for the first time but you had to have that comorbid trauma history, right? Right, yeah, that, that's the way that I understood it as well. And then Again, yeah, that they mentioned sometimes it comes up so many years later, if it's the first time that they might have come close, whether it's physically to something that reminded them or the place where some trauma happened, um, then that might also be a catalyst. One of the things I thought was interesting and I thought was valuable in the Martinez paper, for example, was that in their comparison to schizophrenia spectrum or psychosis spectrum disorders, um, there is a lot more trauma in DID than in schizophrenia, but clearly the this his, this narrative that is developing is that childhood trauma is affecting schizophrenia, and even with that, this is more. Right. Okay. This one, I it's not essential, but I would say that it's coming close to essential close to, to essential. make the diagnosis where not necessarily in schizophrenia. There are a couple of differences in the way that ages present. So we talked about uh, men and women being somewhat different in the way they present. Uh, the DSM, the person who authored that section said, hey, anybody can see the change in the personality state. But in children, it's not so common to see that change in personality state. The personalities aren't so distinct. Right. How do we pick it up in children? How, how, do you, how would you identify this in children? Well, in children, that was really hard to, and, and that was another thing. It's a good point. They bring up that not all different personality states are dramatic, or dramatically different. That some of them, it, it can be a little harder to tell the difference between different personality states and especially children 
who are doing make-believe or pretend playing, or they might be a, a character, or maybe an actor, <laughs> or, or something that us, I don't know, did any of you guys have imaginary friends when you were kids? I didn't. I didn't. I, I'm not creative enough to even get out the crayons and write on the walls. I, yeah. I, was, I didn't have much of that stuff going on. No. Um, children, I... I <laughs> children are like a black box, let's yeah, be honest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> aren't they just little adults? Yeah, there's no Isn't that what we're taught in medical school? Just no little differences. Adults? <laughs> not, not at all. By the way, anybody that's listening and doesn't hear the uh, intended humor in my voice, that is absolutely wrong. They are not little adults. Am I correct on that? You're taught that at least once? At least. <laughs> um, changing gears just a little bit, and I think uh, Kristen and Logan are now going to be jumping in a little bit more. The differential that's listed in the DSM is extensive. PTSD, major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, psychotic spectrum disorders, uh, substance misuse disorders, personality disorders, conversion disorders, seizure disorders, factitious and malingering disorders. I don't recall seeing a differential that long anywhere else in the DSM. My memory isn't great, but that seemed to be really long to me. Yeah. You said something that caught my attention a great deal. You, uh, one of the things that we try to do in preparation for the podcasts is have a discussion that is helpful in terms of shelf yield. How many questions did you find where uh, dissociative identity disorder was the correct answer in your test prep? In my test prep, it did come across a couple of times, more often as a distractor answer. Not just more often, much more. Significantly. Yeah. All right, so the key to understanding the, the benefit of, of learning more about DID is understanding how it's not one of the other conditions, right? This is going right. to be a close second, I think, for a lot of conditions because the differential is, there's, there's a lot of overlap. Right. So let's, let's try and tick these off one by one, the reasons why we might choose uh, the, quote, real diagnosis over the, quote, distractor diagnosis, and we'll assume that in most cases that DID is going to be the distractor, okay? So first one, PTSD, who's got this one? How would you be able to pick up the differences between PTSD and DID on a shelf uh, question? So with PTSD, the patient is going to have uh, a severe trauma that occurs a month or more before the episode of loss of personal history. And in the question, you would be looking for uh, a situation with that trauma. So you also have that, generally speaking, with uh, DID. I think we've got to find a better distinguisher. Any ideas? It seems, from my understanding of PTSD, there will be more of maybe a sense of impending doom. Maybe not impending doom, but... Uh, feeling like they're closing in or uncomfortable with the certain situations. Certain situations, whereas in DID, they n sometimes are perfectly comfortable with the uh, changes in what's going on. How about if we think about it this way, and I'm not sure this is the right answer either. With PTSD, there are a number of physical symptoms, right? The reliving experiences. Those are uh, somewhat panic-like in nature, generalized anxiety in nature, and so forth. In DID, there's clearly comorbidity, 
but I think rather than having uh, the uh, physiological symptoms, I think it's more likely to have the emotional symptoms or the switch in state. So maybe uh, we think about the response to trauma being somewhat different in DID rather than uh, in PTSD. So so rather than all the physical symptoms and the nightmares, which I think would be common, the reliving experiences, which would be common in PTSD, we're looking for a state or a, a personality change. Right. I'm wondering if that's the distinction. Any any ideas on that? Yeah, that's my understanding. And in questions on shelf type exams, it seems like in PTSD, the question would be more focused on a single event that was traumatic that the person might be reliving. Whereas for um, DID, I feel like there isn't quite as much focus on a single trauma event, but you might hear a history of repeated traumas, but there isn't necessarily a trigger and there isn't necessarily a reliving experience. I like that a lot. And if there is a response to the quote trigger, it's going to be go to the other emotional state, dissociate, so to speak. Right. And then the other emotional state might not be bothered as much because there is a dissociative amnesia component surrounding the trauma. Whereas in PTSD, there's sometimes a big focus on the trauma. Whereas dissociative, they're trying to dissociate from the event and not think about it. Not have to you know, live that moment. Right. Uh, all right. Major depressive disorder. Who has that one? Hold on. Let me see if I can pull this off. <laughs> I think this one seems easier. It, it does. One thing that you... With, with major depressive disorder, obviously you can have periods of time where those symptoms are there. But in dissociative identity disorder, there would sometimes be quicker flips than you would expect between the depressive symptoms and not that would last. So you're talking about uh, more rapid changes in personality happening. It's not a slow transition to depression. You're also talking, I think, about... um, I, I think one of the challenges here is the overlap is largely suicidal and comorbidity but the idea of uh, trauma being prominent, we're not going to think about that as much with major depressive disorder. Undoubtedly, you're increasing the, uh, undoubtedly, there's research out there that I have not become aware of where ACEs, adverse childhood events, have increased the possibility of major depressive disorder in adolescence and adulthood, right? I'm guessing it's out there. But that's not going to be the way that the major depressive disorder questions are going to be phrased. And the suicidality is probably going to be in response to uh, trauma or state change with uh, DID and suicidality is going to be more about hopelessness maybe with uh, major depressive disorder, maybe. I'm speculating here. Anything that you picked up in the in the questions, or was I'm guessing that DID was not necessarily a distractor in major depressive disorder questions that you came across? No, the one component that I would sometimes see would be a depersonalization. I, I think I saw that as a distractor, just that component of it, but it wasn't a strong distractor. Okay. Uh, Bipolar disorder, you mentioned it near the beginning when you talked about state changes that can be fairly dramatic. I think the DSM goes into a little bit of detail about changes in personality that could have manic-like qualities. Right. It did, and then what it really differentiated 
when talking about bipolar is the speed of the changes, whereas people with bipolar often will have a slower, more gradual change in their emotional state, and that the people with DID, some of their other personalities, if you do suspect something like major depressive or bipolar, and then a personality changes, and those features aren't there anymore, that that would be more leaning towards DID. I do think major depressive disorder might have some changes in memory and profound depression, but I don't think we would see mania have that kind of the memory gaps, the dissociative amnesia gaps, right? right. So I think that would also be another way of thinking about mania is, is there a, a memory aspect of this or component? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, do, I do notice that when my patient's thoughts are going incredibly fast, they have a tough time attending to topics and sometimes don't, uh, they don't learn the, the information and, and there are gaps, but it doesn't seem to be the same as having that really block of time where, where one of the five types of amnesia that you described is present. Right. Uh, psychotic disorders. This is one we definitely talked a little bit about more in the beginning. Uh, there can, well, I'll, I'll let the Logan, let's see what Logan, you got here. Yeah. So it seems that uh, both can have voices involved. So um, in yeah. DID or different psychotic disorders, but it seems that the perception is what's different. So uh, they can both have delusions, but a person, a patient with DID uh, wouldn't come up with a delusional explanation, uh, whereas a psychotic, a, a patient with a psychotic disorder would be more apt to have a delusional explanation of what is occurring. So are you saying that a person with dissociative identity disorder would be able to say, oh, I'm coming in and out of a dissociative state? Uh, Along those lines, but that would depend on the amount of, th that would be a case-by-case -case basis because I believe that uh, D some DID patients have that knowledge and some don't depending on the levels of therapy that they've received. Mm -hmm. uh, but it would be more like uh, an, a, an example here is a patient with DID uh, could say something like, I feel like someone else wants to cry with my eyes. Mm. where um, uh, a person with a, a psychotic disorder um, might not be able to get something out like, like that. What would it look like maybe, Danny? I think I might have mentioned earlier, say the government had put some extra tear ducts, tear in, ducts in their eyes that's just causing it to themselves to cry or... And I think that speaks to the personality aspect of it, right? Right. There are one of the things I was surprised by reading through the DSM and trying to understand the distinctions of this condition was that uh, that change in state, um, the discontinuity in sense of self or agency. There are periods when people come out of a dissociative state. And they, either in the confusion of coming out, which sounds post-ictal to me, right? Mm. Or within the context of delusions associated with this condition, either of those can feel very controlled, like they're not in control of their body. Right. But I think the distinction you're making then, Logan, is a 
the the other the, the person is controlling this. I'm not the person controlling this. It's another identity, so to speak. Whereas somebody that has a delusional disorder will find some sort of uh, explanation for the tears that that has something that that sounds equally or maybe more delusional, but doesn't relate to the idea of a person in control that's not you. I think right. That's kind of where I got to at the end. Is watch for watch for who controls what, right? right? Delusions of control and how that's controlled. And, and that's really interesting too, in the section on derealization, particularly, it was saying that patients who are experiencing these episodes might say, I feel like I'm going crazy, or they're concerned about going, quote, crazy, and worried about long-term brain damage. Whereas someone maybe with a psychosis would be assuming that it's aliens have been possessing them or other outside forces acting on them versus themselves something being wrong with them. Interesting. That, that does speak somewhat to the inside of schizophrenia. I have also wondered about uh, negative symptoms being maybe one of the things that would help differentiate between uh, DID and uh, schizophrenia. Very difficult for me to know that though. Right. Uh, substance misuse. I think this one feels a little bit like we're going to see the substance misuse as a stem, right? Where we we actually have in the have in the uh, stem of the information that something has been used, right? And but maybe not. Let's see, Logan, do you have some uh, information for us on this? Uh, I didn't uh, look at this. So we did actually look a little bit into this, and um, certain drugs can lead you to feel. Um, dissociated in various ways. I know ketamine is one of the big ones. Um, and so you may get a question stem where there's multi-drug use or they have access to um, sort of prescription type drugs and are using them that way. Um, but to differentiate it from DID in a question, I know that the ketamine episodes will last a lot less time. So depending on how much you give, it's probably only about an hour or so. Um, but with DID, those episodes can last who, who, who knows how long, days, weeks maybe. And um, as far as I know, some patients will remember their ketamine use a little bit better. So one of the, so I'm gonna, I'm going to, I think, I think on all of these I'm like skeptical, right? You can tell that I'm like, well, wait a minute, I'm not really sure that's a difference. But on this one, so, so I think PCP also has some dissociative properties. And there were some interesting studies done, I, I want to say by a guy named either Ruby or Luby, and, and it's escaping me. These were done in the 50s and the 60s using uh, dissociative anesthetics to try and mimic schizophrenia and negative symptoms through uh, uh, glutamate pathways, right? And one of the things that they found is that these more often mimicked the negative symptoms of schizophrenia more than anything else. And so what I'm wondering is if we would see um, if we would see more of a focus on, uh, with the dissociative anesthetics, negative symptom kinds of things. Again, something like we would see with schizophrenia that wouldn't be necessarily present in, in uh, DID. And then the other thing, though, I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that on the duration of ketamine, but I think there are some patients that can have prolonged 
dissociation or even psychosis with those. And I think even PCP uh, in the either Ruby or Luby articles, and I wish I could remember that more correctly now, um, they talked about people having some of those experiences for up to a month with at least PCP. So I, I, I think you're going to have to look for STEM questions about multi-substance use. But again, if you go back to the criteria, that's a common co-occurring uh, or comorbid condition with this situation. Um, but I think the I think the test questions are still probably going to focus on like what you're talking about with the substance misuse, and that should lead you towards a dissociative anesthetic rather than uh, maybe towards schizophrenia or towards DID. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm still I would miss these questions. I'm just going to say that now. I, I would agree with that. Like I said, I had one to two practice questions where it was the right answer to be one of these disorders and that was in practice and on the actual exam it was a distractor I, two or three times but never the right one you think? and I, I think <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure <laughs> because I had researched this topic I was pretty sure I, I had it but it, it like you said any time where drugs is a alternative option then you go with the alternative option. I think I read too about some anti-muscarinic agents that some people might abuse that have induced derealization episodes. Interesting. What were they? Do you remember? I I, I couldn't. This is conversion so. disorder. Let's go to the next one. Who has this one? I'm not sure we assigned it. Um, let's just uh, let's see. We will uh, hope that we get non-possession DID during the time that we are on the test and somebody knows the question in another state. Uh, but I think the difference would be, uh, even though it's common to have conversion in um, DID, I think it's sort of like the difference between schizoaffective disorder and bipolar disorder, most recent episode, manic or depressed with psychotic features, right? That timeline becomes important. If you have a timeline of derealization, depersonalization, dissociative amnesia, discontinuity, and sense of self or agency, if those happen over a long period of time and it's punctuated by episodes of conversion disorder, then I think you would say that it is DID, not a conversion, or you might have a comorbid diagnosis, but it wouldn't. I, I, I think what I'm coming to the further along we go in this is to diagnose, rather than saying how do you diagnose one instead of the other, I think what I'm coming to is to diagnose um, DID, what we really have to have is that change in state and the gaps in recall. So the dissociative amnesia I think is gonna be the thing that adds to it and makes it kind of the lock-in. Right. And, and so it's more about do you see all the criteria for DID than what is it about the others that helps us distinguish it? And maybe it's not so much what the others have or don't have, it's maybe more that you have to have the things from DID. Right. I don't know though. Yeah. I, that, I yeah, would. for test purposes, it will probably be a little bit more clear, but um, in real life, I think it, it gets a lot muddier. I, I have, and now as I go through this, in retrospect, I'm wondering how many times I may have made mistakes and how I've tackled things with people that had a lot of comorbidity and how I went about that. But I'm not entirely sure. I mean, this is very, very difficult. And, and I think even the early articles we've read, this is going to be at least part of a, a, a first part of two or three podcasts, right? 
and I think we'll at least talk about treatment of dissociative identity disorder at some point. And then I think in the future, and I don't know that you'll still be here, Danny, when we do this, we've got a pending podcast on Alice in Wonderland syndrome that we're, we've been uh, cooking up with uh, a pre-med student that is interested in participating in the process. And so I, I think that speaks to some portion of this. There's this really big overlap of symptoms that are very difficult for me to wrap my head around. First to admit it. Yeah. Uh, I think on that note, we should probably stop. We're very close to stop. Um, I'd like to hear takeaway points, Kristen and Logan, from the two of you, unless I've missed something on the test that, that we should have talked about. Uh, the only other thing that we were thinking of talking about is panic disorder, mm -hmm. because um, some people when they have panic attacks will report feelings of feeling detached from their body or from reality. However, um, in a panic attack, usually, especially on questions, if they're in the middle of a panic attack, you're going to have the elevated heart rate, the um, elevated breathing rate, and the physical signs of a panic attack. Um, whereas in DID, you may not see that. It does seem like more often when we talk about DID, it's the emotional response, which is the state change, right? As opposed to the, my body is telling me I don't feel right. I like that. And I think the only other thing was uh, sleepwalking. <laughs> they had, Somnambulism. They had talked a little bit about, uh, yeah, non-rapid eye movement, sleep arousal disorder, sleepwalking type. That's not another personality. Um, and also, just real quick, uh, somatic symptom disorder. Um, they can forget certain aspects of personal history, and as well as uh, borderline personality disorder. Uh, through stressful states, they can forget uh, parts of their personal history. Or, sorry, not forget part of their personal history, um, have episodes of dissociation. And. If I could add one more thing, just really quick, on the, the subject of malingering, just because I thought it was so interesting, is that if a patient is malingering uh, to have DID, the, the characters that they create are either all good or all bad, and they're kind of caricatures of what they would assume someone with multiple personalities, one of their, and, and also so they could blame bad actions on the bad personality, and redeem themselves with the good. Uh, it was wow. really interesting. That is interesting. Um, I might have last night when I had a disagreement with somebody I care about. I'm pretty sure that was the all bad personality. <laughs> and I am not malingering right now. Uh. <laughs> um, all right, so take home points. Let's start with uh, Jessica, uh, Jessica, geez. Let's start with Kristen. It's okay. I, I'm a pretty average white girl. It happens a lot. <laughs> uh, Jessica was a student that was here 31, 30, 40 days ago who did a very good job. And I saw her name on one of the podcasts as I was getting ready for this one. I'm very sorry, Kristen. Well, I do know your name, even if I can't pronounce your last name. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, if she did a good job, you're welcome to confuse me with her. <laughs> <laughs> she did a great job, actually. <laughs> but you are a very different person. <laughs> very different. Um, takeaways. Uh, really, just my biggest takeaway was how a lot of these things overlap so much and um, how difficult it is to work in this field and be able to give people correct diagnoses and that this is probably part of the reason why people can go through four or five different diagnoses with their doctors before they really nail down what's going on with them. Yeah, apparently we're, we have very valid diagnoses and they're very reproducible. But my goodness, this, 
this may be the epitome of, am I getting it right in psychiatry, right? It's, I was going to say it's like the syphilis of psychiatry, which is the great imitator, right? It's, it's not the syphilis, it's the, uh, it's the uh, dissociative identity disorder of, of you know, psychiatric medicine. I don't know. Right. Isn't that, do, do they still talk about uh, syphilis being the oh, great imitator? Oh, yeah. Okay. Dr. It could always be syphilis. Yeah. I'm glad that I'm not the only one that gets names for God that time. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that would be one of the differentials on this probably as well, right? Right. Uh, very good, very, very good takeaway. Logan? Uh, so it looks like uh, DID is a diagnosis where you've got to rule some other things out. And so I would just take that for the students uh, on the exams as well. It's probably an answer that needs to have uh, the others ruled out first. That's actually a great way of thinking about that because there are clearly exclusionary uh, criteria. And I, I think I'll also add the flip side to that is it seems to include a lot of other things. So if you had the choice between DID and dissociative amnesia, you'd have to add something to DID or to dissociative amnesia to get a DID diagnosis, if that makes sense. So it's both the exclusionary and the inclusionary. You have to have all of it, but I, I really like that. Danny. It is a hard diagnosis to make. Like, just there's so many other, it's the end of the list. If there isn't this or this or this or this that explains it better, then you could consider it. It's not as easy as when you see it on the movies or a TV show of someone with multiple <laughs> personalities. You're like, that, that's it. It's maybe not quite that cut and dry. To further complicate things, I did watch an interview of a woman who had DID. It was a really long interview, but she said things like, um, to make it even worse, some of the other personalities may have, like borderline or something, and the original personality may not, which can, can further muddy the waters. Uh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. <sighs> <laughs> Danny, anything else? That, that is it for me. All right, so here's my takeaway. Oh my gosh. I think that's my takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> so, so again, I'm very, I, I've had a tough time with this diagnosis because, um, I mean, even when you look at uh, some of the articles online and the empirical validation, you wonder if they're doing enough EEGs on the patient population that they're looking at because to me this sounds like a seizure, right? Um, but then again, as you start looking at aberrant pathways that may be involved in perception, this starts to get a lot more fascinating, right? And I think, uh, I think when Eli comes back and does his podcast on Alice in, Alice in Wonderland syndrome, which speaks a lot to some of the derealization, depersonalization syndrome uh, symptoms, I, I, I'm not surprised that there's a discontinuity uh, in sense of self or agency when you have symptoms like that and they seem to be neurologically driven. Now why there would be such a, a this huge aspect of childhood trauma playing into that, I don't understand, right? And, and that it's not immediately apparent to me why that might be epigenetic um, <laughs> is probably because I simply don't understand enough, right? Um, but we have this huge story here of an induced illness that is quite disruptive in people's lives, right? It looks like prison for men, and uh, women have a very tough time functioning as well, but I, I don't 
I didn't have the same sense of where they ended up, just that they ended up seeking help eventually. And so there's something here. It's clearly something that uh, I'm hoping as we look at the biology of this condition and the treatment of the con this condition, if we get the additional two podcasts done, I'm pretty excited about where this could go, right? Yeah. And hopefully I have a better sense of what it all means. So even though right now it feels like it's very murky, I suspect when we get uh, maybe either pathways locked down or we get um, uh, some sort of receptor physiology or something, you know, channelopathy, whatever the case might be, I, I sincerely hope that we find a better explanation and better pathways for treatment than, than what it seems like we have. Because even now, recognition is difficult, let alone treatment, I think. That's my, my takeaway. Yeah. Who knows, though? I, yeah. I feel like I'm the last guy that should give a takeaway on DID. <laughs> on that note, uh, thank you so much for preparing this. And uh, Logan and Kristen, thank you for joining me in, and uh, Danny in this podcast. And on that note, team out. Team, team out. out. <laughs>